morning, if you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Matthew. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> Matthew 26. Friday, Friday was a very interesting day for me. Friday was uh, an interesting day for, for many reasons. Uh, one of which was uh, a, a habit that I have, and not so uh, oftentimes a good habit, but when I know there's something I should be doing, and and then I get this, this nagging, this pulling that, that I just want to be with my family. I want to do things with my children or with my wife. And oftentimes I put things that I know I probably should have done aside to, to do something with them. Friday was just one of those days. We got to spend some time watching, watching the boys play and run around and, and spend some time with them in a movie. That makes Friday a very interesting day. But it's not the only reason that makes Friday a, a very interesting day. Because Friday was one of the days, which we'll probably remember for a long time, I imagine. Friday was the day that we inaugurated the 45th president of the United States, President Donald Trump. And amidst cries of protests, and amidst cries of, of joy, and speeches of thanks, and elaborate celebrations, President Trump wasted very little time getting to about setting to work. And... One thing that, that every president has to do, no, no matter uh, whether they're Republican or Democrat, there's something that every president has to do when they come into office. They have to ask themselves a question. They need to say, do we need this? Do we need this? Whether it be something trivial like the White House uh, decorations. As the president comes in, they have the option to choose between the the decor that is in the Oval Office, or maybe we're going to switch it out for some new paintings and some new books that I want in there. The staff that's there. Do I need the staff that's here? Do, do I want to get new staff or place those, those out? They also have to answer this question in very important matters. Uh, important matters such as uh, policies of the U.S. Are these policies that I think we need, or is it something that I want to change? Maybe it be foreign policy, or maybe it have to do with health care, environment, uh, the the economy, you, you name it, all these different things that, that the president has to look at and say, do, do we need these things or is this something that I should set about changing? What we see then is the president, like many of us, has got to face a question of housekeeping. Whether or not we are talking about what the president does or whether we are talking about moving to a new house or whether we are talking about spring cleaning. I'm so glad Charles mentioned spring is on the way. And so that means with a lot of us, spring cleaning is coming up. And we're going to be asking ourselves that question. Do we need this? It's an important one because when we ask that question, we are considering one of two things. One is, is this something that I need to keep here because it's, it's just taken up place? Is it maybe taken away uh, the, the, the importance of something else? You know, maybe when we look at our garages, we need to ask ourselves the question, do I really need, do I really need three lawnmowers in my garage, two of which don't even run? I'm just taking parts off them to keep the third one running the way it needs to be running, and it don't really run that well. What about rakes? I've got like 15 different uh, types of the same rake. Do I really need all of these rakes? Or paint, I know that's one for me. We go in our basement, we have got every paint can that we have bought, whether it be empty or full since we bought that house. Do I really need to keep all these? I don't know why. I guess it's because paint's just so hard to get rid of. I don't know. We have to look at these things and go, do I need that? Or is it taking place for something that's maybe more important? Like, for instance, in our garage, I could fit my car in there if I didn't have all that stuff in the way. Now, if any of that sounds familiar to anybody in here, I assure you I'm not picking on any one of you. 
nobody in this room that, I, that I'm thinking of when I talk about these things. But it's a very important question to ask. Do I need this? Maybe there's something more important that needs to go in that place. But it's also a question that we ask to remind us whether or not something holds a high importance to us to begin with. Maybe we see things and as we're cleaning it out and go, and we ask ourselves, do I need this? And we realize, yes, we do need this. Maybe it's a, a family heirloom, or maybe <clears throat> it's something that a, a, a tool that a, a father or a grandfather used, and there's such importance to me that why, am I, why do I have it out here in the dust? And why is it setting out here uh, not, not where it belongs? Why don't I put it somewhere where people can see it? Because it's important to me, and I want to share it with others. <clears throat> we need to be asking that question as well when it comes to our religious life. When it comes to things that are spiritual in, na in nature. And so this morning, I want to ask that question. As we have been looking at um, a couple weeks ago, the congregational worship, we started looking at singing. I want to look at the Lord's Supper today, or this morning, excuse me, and ask the question, do we need the Lord's Supper? They're going to have several verses uh, that we're going to look at, and some of which we, we aren't going to turn to. I'm just going to read them. And if you want to, to be jotting these down, because I think it's important, for us to, to consider all that the scripture has to say about this matter. But because of, of time, I'm going to try to, to, to cut down on some of these, flipping to all these verses. So some of these you may just want to, to turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16 calls the, the Lord's Supper a communion or a sharing. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 calls the Lord's Supper the breaking of bread. The Eucharist, as it's called, but from the Greek word Eucharistio, means giving of thanks, which Christ did at the time of his initiation or institution of the Lord's Supper. We read about that here in Matthew chapter 26. Read with me verses 26 through 28. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper is a simple act in which Christians partake of unleavened bread and drink of the fruit of the vine and do so together as they assemble for that very purpose. So when we ask the question, do we need the Lord's Supper? I think, I think we should hear a resounding and bold yes. We need the Lord's Supper. We need the Lord's Supper because, because the Lord instituted it himself. Matthew chapter 26 points that out. This is something that Jesus instituted as people who are striving to be like Christ. Well, that should set up a little flag in our minds. That that's something that I need to be doing, observing the Lord's Supper that he instituted. But not alone and just that he instituted it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is something we read that it is an observation in which he commanded us to partake of. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24, 24 and 25. It says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The question this morning, then, should not be, Do we need the Lord's Supper? Yes, absolutely, we need the Lord's Supper. The question should be, Why? Why do we need the Lord's Supper? Why is the Lord's Supper so important? To begin, let's review a few evidences of the Lord's Supper. Starting with biblical evidences that we have. 
The biblical evidence that we see in this passage, such as Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, a passage that we've already referenced, Acts 20 and verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. That's one of the evidences that we see <coughs> for the Lord's Supper, is that it was something that the Christians came together to do on the first day of the week to break bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So breaking of bread, we read that, that, past, or that phrase, it is most often referring to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 goes on in verses 17 through 22 to talk about the Corinthians and how they were coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper. It says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What do you have to do? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. The Corinthians, while, while doing it wrong... I want to think about that for a minute, and we'll come back to that after a while. The Corinthians were doing it wrong, but they were gathering together to, to observe the Lord's Supper. And if we look over in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, and we see uh, in regards to their collection, we see the, how often they were gathering together. Again, now concerning the collection for the saints that I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each one of you, is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. We see that following the divinely approved example of the, the first century Christians in the Bible, we know God approves of a weekly observance on the first day of the week. That's the biblical examples that we have. There are also historical examples as well. One of the earliest historical evidence is outside of the Bible. This is, this is separate and apart from the Bible confirms the day and frequency. The Didact is a book written by men. It is a book that the authors are unknown. It's traditionally been supposed that the apostles wrote the book, but we have no way of knowing that. And the book is not considered inspired in any sort of way, but it does record a lot of what was going on in this first century. It was written in 95 AD, and in it we read that Christians were coming together on a regular basis on the first day of the week to break bread. Justin Martyr, another, another uh, his, historian um, from the early uh, first and second century, he recorded in his book Apologies, the first volume, that Christians assembled on Sunday to partake of the supper. Early church writers, again, such as, such as Justin and Barnabas and Arrhenius and Clement of Alexandria, Origen and Cyprian, all with, with one consent declared that the church gathered together on the first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper. Not only them, we have all this examples historically, we also have examples today of religious scholars who, who in studying this and being trained in, in the Greek and in, in the, what was going on in those days, they confirm as well this practice. Um, <clears throat> Augustus Neander, who wrote the book History of Christian Religion in the Church, said, as we've already remarked, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was still held to constitute an essential part of divine worship 
every Sunday. Uh, Thomas Scott, in his commentary on Acts 20 and verse 7, said this ordinance, the Lord's Supper, seems to have been administered every Lord's Day and probably no professed Christian absented themselves. A.C. Hervey said this is also an important example of weekly communion as the practice of the first Christians. And P. Doddridge said it is well known that the primitive Christians administered the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, every Lord's Day. What I want to point out by all this is that there is over an overwhelming consensus of extra-biblical, secular sources that support what the biblical source, the Word of God, teaches. And that is that the practice was observed uh, was to observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And having known that, having known that, there is a very real possibility that we can understand when it's supposed to be partaken of. And we can understand that we are supposed to partake of it, and we can partake of it and never really understand the value of it. We can be like that, that, that group in Corinth that were partaking of the Lord's Supper and doing so in the wrong manner. When we consider why we need the Lord's Supper, the value of the Lord's Supper really needs to be emphasized. And the first thing that I want to notice is that the Lord's Supper is valuable because it is a memorial. It is a memorial. Note in Paul, Paul's uh, comments in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 25. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is not Paul just talking about what he feels like talking about. This is instruction that he received from Jesus. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, <clears throat> as you drink it in remembrance of me. We eat the bread in memory of the body. We drink the cup, the fruit of the vine, in memory of the blood. And therefore, what we're doing is we are commemorating. That word commemorate. You know, when I hear that word, I, I always think back. Dad used to get these magazines, and you'd open them up, and they would have commemorative Plaques and cups and plates and, and all sorts of stuff from everything from, from Gene Rogers and from uh, the Duke. <laughs> My mind, I lost him. Uh, <laughs> John Wayne and, and all these famous celebrities from, from, from uh, his, his youth. And, and then you'd have stuff from things that have happened more, more you know, recently. You'd have commemorative plates for the, the presidents that have uh, been assassinated, John F. Kennedy. Uh, but the one that always stuck out in my mind was the commemorative plate for, for the Challenger. And it had all the, the pictures, the images of their faces and the, the spaceship that, that had that tragic uh, accident. I just remember seeing these things, and it would, it would do something because it would draw a picture in my mind. It would draw a picture in my mind of what they stood for and, and, and what happened to them. And, and the Lord's Supper is a memorial to us. It commemorates Jesus and draws a picture in our mind of the death of Jesus on the cross. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to remember that we are memorializing His death and what that death means. 
his death which made a new covenant possible. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16 talks about the, the testator in the New Testament and, and how the New Testament could not be valid until, until he who was the testator had died. Jesus' death made this new covenant possible. God always required blood for a covenant. In his old covenant with Abraham, he provided the blood with, with the bulls and the goats. In the new covenant with Jesus, he provided the blood with the perfect and pure sacrifice of his son. And his blood was shed for the remission of sins. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Is not the memorial, the commemoration of the Lord's suffering, of his death, and of his shed blood worthy of faithful observance. I want to key in on that word, faithful observance. We'll talk about that uh, towards the end of the sermon. But is it not worthy of that? Is it not worthy of faithful observance? We also need to remember that it's valuable as a proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 now says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The first part of that passage tells us that we are proclaiming our faith in the, in the success of his death. The effectiveness of his death. That his death was indeed for our sins. Not that we just believe that he was alive and that he died. But he died for a purpose. That purpose was to wash away our sins. And that he was successful in that purpose. In making us a people who could be pure. You know, the question is asked, if we don't believe that. If we don't believe that he died for the remission of our sins then why would we even bother keeping the supper? But the other question, and we could flip that around, and we could ask it another way, we could say if we do believe that, if we do believe that his death was for the purpose of creating a people that were pure, washing away their sins, and making them acceptable in the eyes of God, what could possibly keep us from observing this supper? Not only do we, do we proclaim our faith in the success or the effectiveness of his death, we also proclaim our faith in that the Lord is going to return one day. The latter part of, of, of verse 26, we do so until he comes. If we believe that his death was successful in washing away our sins, if we believe that one day he is returning to gather home those of whom have been made clean by his blood, then is not this proclamation of the Lord's redemption and return worthy of faithful observance. Another value of the Lord's Supper is that it's a time of reflection. It's a time of reflection, not reflecting, not reflecting upon, um, upon what's going on around you, not reflecting upon somebody else, or reflecting upon what you're going to have for, for lunch today, or, or what's going to come up in the, the, this week, what do I have in store? It's not a time to reflect upon what we are going to, to pray at an opening prayer or sing as a song leader or, or preach as the preacher. It's a time to reflect on something very specific. Read with me verses 28 through 32. It says, but a man, <clears throat> let's start in verse 27. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. So that... So that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, this time, this time that we have to, to reflect upon our lives is a time that we look at our lives and, and, and we reflect upon our relationship. It is a time of looking at what it is we offer to the Lord. I remember, I remember growing up. I remember hearing sermons on this. We are to examine ourselves, and then we are to discern the body uh, of the Lord. And I remember growing up uh, but from a young age before I, before I had been baptized, uh, and even afterwards, I would I would during the Lord's Supper visualize the Lord's body as he as he hung upon the cross, as as those nails were driven in in. And, and the, the blood was, was pouring down. And, and I would see this and I would be moved. And, and that's an important vision to see. But that is, not, that is not necessarily what we need to reflect upon each and every time. Because we need to also visualize, aside from the death that happened on that cross, we need to visualize the life that occurred before that death. We need to visualize Jesus as he was. Perfect. And as he was, and that he loved people, even people who hated him, people who cried out for his death. He still loved people, and he healed people, and not just miraculously, not just healing the lame and making them walk and the blind and making them see. He took broken people, the woman at the well, and showed them what they needed to be made whole. We need to see Jesus and his life. Then we need to see ourselves. And, we need to also, and then we need to judge ourselves. And again, this does not mean, this does not mean that if we see a difference between our life and Jesus' life, then we just do not partake of the Lord's Supper. Because I can pretty much guarantee that every time that we're going to look at our lives and compare them to Jesus' life, we're going to see a difference. We're going to see something that we need to be working on, something that we need to, to grow in. We will never be people who are worthy of the blood of our Savior, of his sacrifice. But we can be people who take it in a worthy manner by considering are we living in a manner that shows appreciation for his sacrifice. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18, um, through the end of the chapter says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he was committed to us, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
do we accept the grace of God in our lives? Part of that accepting His grace is by living as ambassadors for Christ. Do we do that? To do that, we must live for, for Jesus who died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. If we just back up a few verses um, before that was said. In verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul similarly wrote in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are we living for Jesus? That's one of the things that we need to reflect upon. We need to also look and say, are we living in a manner that shows disrespect or disregard for his sacrifice? Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about those who live in such a manner. And verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of a judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we, if we go on willfully sinning, if we go on choosing to, to, to do things even though we know they're wrong, or we, we know something's wrong in, in front of us, we say, that I, this is just too important to me. I, I can't, I, I won't give this up. I will not stop. I'm going to do what I want to do. What are we saying about the sacrifice of our Lord who came and died so that we could be free from that bondage, from that slavery? We would be, not, we would be just like the, the Israelites in the wilderness who said, I, I don't care. I'll just go right back to Egypt. I'll go back and I'll live in that bondage and I'll die in that bondage. It's better than what I'm having to do out here. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, likewise talks about one who refuses to repent. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of, age, of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Whenever we willfully sin, knowing what we are doing is wrong, whenever we are learning that what we are doing is wrong, but we say, I won't quit. I will not give that up. We are showing a disregard for his sacrifice. And the Lord's Supper is a time for a reflection on the lives that we are living. Are they lives that show a love and appreciation for his sacrifice? Or are they lives that show that we could care less? Is not a time of such a worthy reflection, worthy of faithful observance. We also see that it is valuable as a communion or as a, shell, a sharing or a fellowship. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, uh, 
calls it that the New American Standard. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. When we, when we partake of the fruit of the vine, perhaps as we partake, we, we have a, a sense of being reinforced in the blessings that come through the blood of Christ. When we are communing with the blood, when we are communing with the blood of Christ or sharing with the blood of Christ, perhaps that reinforces our realization of the peace and the joy, the hope that we have because of that blood. But we also have a fellowship or a sharing with the body of Christ. The latter part of verse 16 goes on to say, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. And as we partake and commune with the body of Christ, perhaps again we have a sense of reinforcing the fellowship, the sharing that we have within the body of Christ, that is to say within the church. The fellowship that we have together as we break bread together. Whenever we think of the communion that we have with the Lord's blood that was shed for us, that gives us so many blessings the communion that we have with his body, that he, has, that he has gathered up, the church. Is that not worthy, again, of a faithful observance? And lastly, let's look at that idea of fellowship. Because the Lord's Supper is very valuable in that it builds that fellowship up. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 said the disciples came together to break bread. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17 goes on to show that the eating of the, of the bread, the same bread, reflects our oneness in Christ. Since there is one bread, we, are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It goes on in verse 18, says, Look, that the nation of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, shares in the altars. What do I mean then? That things sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say the things... With the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become shares in demons. When we partake of the one bread, we are communing together in such a way that builds fellowship. And that we are recognizing that it is God in whom we serve. And we serve him together. We serve him as one. You know that concept of, of oneness. We've been trying to explain that to the boys lately. You know, maybe a, a, a discussion is going on, maybe an argument, and the boys are we tempted every now and then to say, I'm on mom's side, I'm on dad's side. More oftentimes, there's more on mom's side than there is on dad's side. And we, so I'm thankful that we're working together to go, there are no sides. We are one. We are, we are one entity in our relationship. Now, the boys don't completely understand this. Ryder, he, he will oftentimes say, well, if, so you're one, so you're, you're single. You guys are single. No, that's not quite what we mean. But you know what? I, the more I thought about that, I understood that he was getting it. No, our relational status is not single. But of our minds, we are of a single mind. When I look out at our brothers and sisters here today, I realize we are not we are not Kyle and, and, and Jim. We are not Ann and, and Charles and Paula and, and, and Jewel in Christ. We are one in Christ. That does not mean, just as me and Holly 
our individuals in our marriage, it does not mean that we are not individuals, but it means that it is not my religion. It is not my Christianity. It belongs to Christ, and we are one in that sharing of it together. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33, then goes on to tell, Paul tells the Corinthians, this is why you wait for one another. What they were doing was not reflecting an attitude of being one. Each one was looking out for themselves and for what was most important to them. We don't, we don't do that in that, in that sense. Uh, we can't do that in that sense here today. We, we wouldn't all rush here to see who could get here first, to be the first one to partake of the Lord's Supper. I just want to go in there and get that done, get that done by myself, get it over, and get it out of the way. We wait until we can all partake of it together. And we give those who didn't have an opportunity to partake uh, at the first service, we give them an, an opportunity to partake of it with us again. We may not eat the bread and drink the cup a second time, but we still are communing with them at that time. We are still remembering the memorial and the proclamation at that time. We should still be reflecting upon our lives at that time, and we are still telling them that we are one together in Christ at that time. It is not the fellowship that we have with one another in Christ as we reflect in the supper. Is that not worthy of faithful observance? Having spent some time looking at the value of the Lord's Supper, I want to make one last point. I do want to talk about this idea of faithful observance for a second. Because oftentimes we, we obviously, we think and we, we, we know that if we're going to faithfully observe it, that demands that we be here. We be here faithfully. We must be here to observe. We can't observe that which God requires of us and that which is so very, very valuable to us unless we are gathered together with our fellow Christians. It's not something we can do on our own. But you know, maybe, maybe more important than that is the need to observe the Lord's Supper when we are here. When we are here, we need to actually observe the Lord's Supper. We can become, uh, it can become so easy. To, to make ourselves slack in our worship. We talked a couple weeks ago about our singing. We can become slack in our singing. We can become slack in our prayers. We can become slack in our giving, and we can be absolutely become slack in preaching. But we can become slack in our observance of the Lord's Supper as well. And when we allow this to happen, we are not faithfully observing the Lord's Supper. We are simply just going through a motion. We are checking off a, a thing that we know we are supposed to do. And this problem is a congregational problem and it is a leadership problem. As a congregation, we need to exhort and admonish one another as we sing songs of praise before the supper. We need to follow along with the one who is presiding over the supper. And you know, even if we agree with what they're saying, if we agree with what they're saying, giving that one who is presiding an amen can reinforce the reminder that we are one. What you are saying, what you have taken the time to prepare to guide our hearts and our minds, I agree with that, and I'm right there with you. But as leaders, 
as leaders, we need to give the Lord's Supper the attention that it deserves. It's easy for us, especially during the second service, during the afternoon service, to try and just scoot through this, this required part of our worship. When we do this, we take away from its value and from the congregational's ability to utilize that value. It's often that the most the suffering gets during the second service is simply a request for anyone who has not partaken to raise their hands. Brothers, this, this, this shouldn't be. As leaders of this congregation, it is our task when serving the congregation in memorializing and proclaiming the Lord's Supper to make sure that we do that. We need to prepare ourselves beforehand. We, one thing that I like to do, I like to try and keep a, a short talk written out either in my Bible or a piece of paper tucked away in my Bible so that if any point, in any moment, if I'm called upon to lead the Lord's Supper, I can have something prepared. As we go forward in 2017, I hope that as a congregation and as the men that lead this congregation, we will give renewed attention to the Lord's Supper because it is valued as a memorial, as a proclamation, as a time of reflection, as a communion and a fellowship. And if we take away from that value, then what can it possibly mean for us today? The first Christians continued steadfastly in the Lord's Supper. They came together on a regular basis to, to break bread with one another. Christians today should never lose sight of the significance of the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial of the great sacrifice Jesus paid for our sins. It is a proclamation of the efficacy of his death and his coming return. It is a time for reflection on our lives and rededication of our service to the Lord. It is a communion or a sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. And it is a means of which building the fellowship we have together as one in Christ. Do we appreciate our need for the Lord's Supper today? Do we appreciate the frequency and do we appreciate the manner of our observance? Doing so reveals the extent of our understanding of the need for this wonderful, wonderful ordinance. To understand that, to understand the importance of the Lord's Supper, we must understand the importance of our need for Christ. If you have never, by faith, been moved to, to come to Christ in obedience, to submit to Him as your King and as your Savior, then you desperately are in need of the blood by which was shed on your behalf. The blood which washes away sins. The blood which heals broken lives, which fills empty voids. If your desire this morning is to, is to give your life to Christ, or if your desire this morning is to know more about what that entails, I would encourage you to talk to me. Or talk to one of the men here. Grab one of us and ask us questions. And I guarantee, I, I, I'm confident that anyone here could answer your questions or could point you to where you need to be to get those uh, questions answered. But if you have need to repent of a sin, sin that you has separated you from, you from Christ, a sin that maybe in the past you, you knew you needed to quit and you hadn't you've been refusing to repent of that, stop refusing. Stop choosing to sin against our Lord and start choosing to serve Him faithfully. Whatever I can do to encourage you and to help you in this manner, 
I encourage you, please, let it be known. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.